Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Susan Meyer, the author of How to Flourish, an Ancient Guide to Living Well. Susan is a professor of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania and a specialist in Greek and Roman philosophy. More than 100,000 people worldwide have enrolled in Susan's open access online courses on ancient philosophy, and I'll put a link in the show notes so it's easy for you to find. In this episode, you can expect to learn why Aristotle is a perennial figure, the meaning of eudaimonia, how to flourish in the modern day, applying the golden mean, contemplation versus rumination, wisdom in daily life, and much more. A quick note before we bring on our guest, if you enjoy this conversation, I encourage you to check out our upcoming course, Happiness and the Meaning of Life. It begins on 12 September and runs through 14 October. It's a philosophical study of the art and science of living well. The course will explore the writing and philosophy of figures like Aristotle, Seneca, the Buddha, Epicurus, Viktor Frankl, and many others. It's free for members of Perennial Meditations, which is our daily newsletter on Substack. I'll put a link in the show notes to learn more and register. All right, without any further delay... Please welcome the wise and gracious Susan Meyer. Well, Susan, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Oh, happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm excited to uh, talk about your new book, How to Flourish, An Ancient Guide to to Living Well. I've really enjoyed uh, going through this book, so I'm happy you put it out in the world. But before we get too far into the book, we generally start with some questions about you. Would you mind sharing with us how you initially found your way into philosophy, I guess? Yeah, well, I found my way into philosophy because I was interested in ancient Greek literature. That I, when I was, I'm from um, Montreal and in Quebec, you, after high school, you go to what's called Cégep. It's um, sort of like community college here where you take uh, university style courses, but it's still, um, you're young enough and unformed enough. So I took courses on Greek literature and translation. I read Homer, I read Sophocles. Um, I just, I, I was a literature person. So I decided when I went to university, I wanted to study the classics as Greek and Latin. I'd done some Latin in high school, but I didn't know any Greek, but I knew it was Greek authors I wanted to read. So I went to the University of Toronto, which had a great classics faculty. And uh, my classics advisor at one point said, um, there's a course, here's a course on Plato you should take. It's offered in translation, but Plato wrote in Greek, so you should take that. So I took this course on Plato and it just blew my mind. I realized this is the way I like to think about things. And I like to, this is a real philosopher. So it was actually Plato who drew me into philosophy, even though 
for, you know, I wrote, ended up writing a doctoral dissertation. I wrote about Aristotle and most of the work I wrote as I was lucky enough to have a career sort of teaching philosophy and writing books about philosophy. Who could be so lucky? Uh, It was mainly about Aristotle. And I've made my way back to Plato now. I'm doing a lot of work on Plato now, but um, it was Plato's depiction of philosophy in his dialogues that I kind of stumbled into um, and encountered this wonderful world. So um, I invite, it was not so, always just the big questions. Like when you think of search of wisdom, you're interested in these big questions. What is the meaning of life? But more after like a number of years of taking courses in poetry and literature, and everyone seems to be talking about these questions, but there's no, seem to be no right answers and wrong answers. And some, I can't, we go around the room and everyone has something to say about this poem and what it means. Can we all be right? Well, maybe we can all be right. But if it's questions about, but the thing about philosophy is that there's a lot of discipline that you can apply to analyze exactly what question you're answering, what counts as an answer, what doesn't count an answer, how two things that sound like answering the same question, they may be different. So that, that kind of um, firm footing for addressing questions that are, may seem like just too nebulous to handle, um, that just really spoke to me. Um, as that's what the discipline of philosophies I've been trained in is like. And Aristotle is not a literary philosopher by any means, um, but he is definitely, he is a philosopher. He thinks like a philosopher. And if you want to, even if he's much to disagree with in Aristotle, um, it just to engage with it, to read it and think, what does he mean? And why does he think that? And, you know, what can I learn? Always, what can I learn from that? Not, why should I believe this? Because I might not believe it. But um, you have a very formidable opponent who you want to sort of at least rise to the same standard of sort of intellectual integrity in doing it. So that's a long answer to a short question. I was just so lucky. I went from one thing that I found interesting to another, and I've spent my whole life doing that. (laughs) Beautiful. I love the getting some background. And I'm curious if we could go, go back there a bit, if you can remember it all, maybe like discerning particular forks in in the road um you know how did you how did you know to follow that particular path and i'm also asking for any listeners thinking about you know discerning a particular fork in the road i could go down this philosophy path um you know how do you think about that yeah um well I think it was, I was very lucky in that I, you know, was, had the support of my parents. I said I was going to like do my degree. I was like, I can choose a philosophy major. Like my father was the first person in his family who ever went to university. He did a degree in engineering because that's what you do because you could get a job. Right. All of that. That was, um, so it was, it was just a challenge for him to his, his, his daughter to say that she was going into the humanities of all things. But he said, look, you probably have to get a job washing dishes when you're done with it, but I support you. Like you never, you never. It's now. I think there's a lot of pressure on people who are undertaking the education to think, well, what thing can I study now that's going to position me to get the kind of job that's going to sit me on in life? And that's a lot of pressure. Um, and that's not, I think, as I've come to appreciate what uh, I think called, what I would call a liberal arts education is for. It's for like there's these like what happens in your brain, you're just growing intellectually and just neurologically. Every in those years between like 17 and 22 and on, just your mind is sort of expanding and uh, all kinds of you know, habits are forming. 
And that's what, um, uh, to have the freedom to just be able to explore what I, if I'd been a mathematician, like, and I would have been allowed to um, do that, that would have been fine. Even if, you know, most people who study math don't get a job being mathematicians, you, you know, you do something else. Um, so the, so it's, you have to be, I mean, whatever advice I give, could, I was going to be colored by the own sort of great fortune I had to have the you know support of my family and you know, enough material comfort to do it. But just not to be afraid to follow something up because you find it interesting. So what I find a lot of students today, especially if they you know, take a class with me or someone else in philosophy and they're really interested in philosophy and they're talking to their friends about it and their friends say, but what are you going to do with that? Like it's the ultimate, maybe, well, maybe I, the only thing I'm going to do with that is I'm just going to learn and think about it and I'll be able to go back and I can read these books. And there's a certain kind of, um, it's it's fulfilling and valuable in its own right. It's like, like most people don't, if you, if you're telling somebody about your religion, people don't say, well, what are you going to do with that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right. You say, no, that's, um, that's something that's very like, it's, um, you know, it's reward. It's important in its own right. That's an important part of my life. So if there are, you know, we should work to make it possible for, Everyone who wants to get that kind of education where you just find something you're interested in, pursue it to be able to do that. Right. And not. Um, and so my advice is if if you can like don't if you get the question, what are you going to do with that? Well, you don't you don't always have to answer the question that people ask you, because that's not always the most important question I could say. I don't know. Or my father told me the answer. Like, I may wash dishes. <laughs> and also, we don't, you try and guess what major to take now in order to get a good job. You're going to be wrong in four years. And certainly, maybe if you're not wrong in four years, in seven years, what you need is, um, you might say, the skills like to be adaptable, um, but just to cultivate your, your own curiosity and your interest. It's sort of being true to yourself but also it's not being like gazing at your navel the whole time it's a way of (laughs) different people are interested in different things some of us are good at like burrowing into old stuff and old texts like I am and other people are good at you know teaching others other people are good at you know the stuff my dad was good at like engineering and they can build things and you know the world needs all of us Mm -hmm. so I'd say yeah don't don't just if you get that question and the question stumps you just take a breath and think well yeah i don't know i don't know what i'm going to do with it but here's 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 something but here's what i really find interesting <laughs> i love it i love it um I, I think a related question to that 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 sometimes comes up on the on the podcast is related to like this search for wisdom mm-hmm. like as you talked about there's many different Pass and there's so many different things, but it, it does seem like there's maybe something that really grabs a hold of someone in the way of just this deep curiosity and wonder around something. And it, it starts this particular search that often lasts a lifetime. And, and that comes up is a, is a common thread with many guests that we've had on. Sometimes it's silent meditation. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that, but how do you make sense of maybe our 
call or desire to seek wisdom and, and follow some particular path? Yeah, well, it's very, it's incredibly human. Maybe if you think of what do all humans have in common, like this, in fact, I can quote Aristotle and say um, that um, we all have the desire to understand or desire to know. Or, I mean, wisdom is like one word, like for the, you know, for what, what it is that we're, uh, we're seeking. So we all, so we all like have that in us, especially like when we're four-year-olds, if you've ever uh, been around or raised to tell there's full of why, 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 why. Um, and there is, I think it's just because we are, you know, we have all this kind of excess mental capacity in a way, because the way our, like for a matter of evolution, our brains develop, we don't have to be always thinking we have more than enough processing power, you might say, to take care of basic survival things. And we have stuff left over and we can think of like, what is it all about? Like, what is, you know, what is the meaning of life? And I guess I mean, my own experience of this, uh, and maybe I don't know how typical this would be. I never would have thought what I was engaged in was the pursuit of wisdom in that way. Cause that almost sounds like, you're looking for someone to tell you answers or you have some view about what the thing is you want to be wise. I was just, I just had questions and it was just so interesting. So I was engaged in certain kinds of pursuits that like are what you do if you're kind of looking for wisdom. And then I found some philosophers, I guess, like Aristotle who thinks and Plato thinks about these things. And maybe now that I'm older and I've raised a family and I've had a career and I had to do things like, you know, figure out like how to run a department, how to manage colleagues and how to like how to deal with bureaucracy and, you know, how to figure out, you know, you know, how to balance your checkbook and deal with the insurance company and all of those things. Like then I can sort of now I think maybe I'm closer to having like some wisdom in the sense of thinking about what's important in life and also what where I am and how I kind of fit into that and I'm always learning new things like either about how the world or yeah that's why yeah um, I'm uh, I realized recently that I used to I spent some time in departmental administration we all have to be you can chair of a department and you guys you have to kind of I figured that leadership is sort of like about two things right you want to kind of inspire people to do things right have goals and then you also have to manage them and when you manage people, you have to get them to do things, right? And that's really, that's, that's some people are really good. That's the people get, get um, you know, good evaluations of, uh, of being good at their management jobs. They're good at getting people to do things. I can never get my kids to do things or get my colleagues <laughs> to do things or that. But I thought I was pretty good on like organizing tasks and keeping, you know, I could run something. But the idea of leadership is actually something very different. So I'm not... I found something about what I'm good at. That's a certain kind of self-knowledge. Um, and it's a wisdom that would fall under, I think, self-knowledge. I think self-knowledge is a very, um, maybe not underappreciated, but certainly very important co component of what we might think of as wisdom. Yeah. It's so interesting how many different little paths where you think of this search or the seeking yourself, life, the world, others. I mean, there's so many little different things in the way of this search for greater understanding of, of things. And uh, I'm excited to do a little bit of that to transition into the book. I've got a few terms here that maybe we could okay. uh, talk about to get us started. One is uh, probably a really easy one for you is 
who is Aristotle for anyone that is obviously people have probably heard the name, uh-huh. but if you could paint the picture of maybe the where, when, and, okay. and why he's a perennial figure. Yeah. So um, Aristotle was um, a Greek philosopher in ancient Greece. So active in the fourth century BCE. So he was, he was not, he was a student of Plato. So if you think of like the, the most famous Greek philosophers, you might think of there's Socrates, whose pupil was Plato. And then there's Aristotle, who is a pupil of Plato. So um, Aristotle comes to Athens. You may, your audience may have heard of Alexander the Great. There have been there were some recent movies for the history buffs about him. So our, um, Aristotle grew up in um, the kingdom of Macedon, so contemporary Macedonia. Um, and his father was um, court physician to the court of Philip, King Philip, father of Alexander the Great. So he was, you know, part of the sort of the um, you know, high society um, in Macedonia. But he came to Athens as a 17-year-old, sent to, so he sent from Macedonia to Athens, where Athens was where Plato's Academy was. And so he enrolled in Plato's Academy, the way we send our children when they're 17 and 18-year-olds who enroll in the university of whatever. Um, and But Aristotle stayed there for the rest of, not the rest of his life, for at least another 20 years or so. So there wasn't, there were no diplomas, you didn't have to leave. He became, it was a research center. So he learned, he was a member of Plato's Academy. Um, he became a you know, philosopher in his own right. Um, and then after Plato died, Aristotle left Athens for a while, but he came back and then he founded his own school, the Lyceum. So all of, all of our own vocabulary like we talk about the academy, like this is higher education. That's Plato's Academy was the name of the original institution of higher education in this tradition. And um, a lyceum, often in the French, in French, you talk about lycée. So it's like a college or high school that comes from the lyceum. So Aristotle founded his school, the lyceum. Um, and he stayed in Athens until just before he died, when, um, which was, the year after, just after Alexander, his pupil, like because Aristotle had actually been a tutor to Alexander at some point um, in his career, um, Alexander the Great, who had conquered most of the Greek world, <laughs> um, there was a lot of anti-Macedonian sentiment in Athens just after Alexander died, and um, Aristotle was he was a resident alien, like he was a his status was a medic, he wasn't Athenian, he was politically vulnerable. He left and he retreated to, um, to, an, to lived on an island. Um, and he died there within the year. And he died at the age of 62, around 322 BCE. Mm. I have a curiosity question. Um, any sort of idea when you think of him at 17, heading to Plato's Academy, any sort of um, info on how many students might have been a part of Plato's Academy? Are we talking like hundreds, thousands, no, any no, sort no. of idea? No, I, we, so again, we, this is like over 2000 years ago, we have, we have really uh, sort of fragmentary um, remains, but it would be in the matter of, they would, I imagine, think there would might be dozens, right, um, of, of people. It was not a it was not an institution of higher education. It isn't like the University of Georgia, right? Or University <laughs> yeah. of Toronto when I was an undergrad. Like just like, it was no, it was nothing like, there was no no formal curriculum. No, it was a very, um, he was sort of into the, uh, into the um, sort of the, 
the household. It's like a small estate. You can still find um, there are there know where the academy was in Athens. It's not big enough for there to have been, <laughs> you know, thousands of people. Uh, so it's like a, a, a circle of friends. Like nice, nice. Um, and another term that that comes up early on in the book um, is this Greek term eudaimonia. Uh-huh. How should we, how should we think about that today? Uh-huh. Well, I guess eudaimonia is the central term in, in, in the, the ethical tradition that comes out of ancient Greek. Um, and I think the way to translate it is happiness. Right. So, and, but happiness, but when we translate eudaimonia as happiness, we have to be kind of very broad minded and think, what do we think of as happiness? There's a very like terminology and words change their meanings over centuries, even within the same language. I'm very much a, a language nerd. Um, so thinking about how we get a lot of our terms from Greek and Latin and then even how Greek terms like get there, like etymology kind of think about. But if you think about how even the English term happiness, if you look it up in a, in a big historical dictionary, like the Oxford English Dictionary, which will tell you, go back centuries and how a term was used, you find that happiness was used for to talk about someone, if you're happy, not you're feeling good, <laughs> but rather you're doing well, right? And so in a good example of this, I, um, a related term in Greek um, that Aristotle uses interchangeably with eudaimonia, or at least with the adjective, is makarios. So, and that's how, if you, um, you might describe, if you're in Greek, a pagan Greek of Aristotle's area, you want to talk about the gods, you, you could say they are makarioi. So that's to say they are blessed, right? So mm. we use the term kind of blessed. It has a really theological context, but that's, um, but if you think of the, in the, um, in the New Testament, um, if you think of the Beatitudes, right, in the gospel, so blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. That's translated from Greek, you know, and the Greek, which is several centuries later than Aristotle, is blessed translates makarios. And makarios means the same thing as as um, um, as eudaimonia in lots of contexts. So what you have is, so it's those are, when you say blessed are the meek, you're not saying they're they feel really good, right? You're saying that they are, they are, you know, benefits come to them. It's not just that they get this reward, but this is saying this is, you know, the best kind of life. This is a really good, this is an amazingly good life. Like it, what, you know, inheriting the earth, like then you have to, that's how, you know, the, a life in which you are meek and then the world is yours and you have to figure out what that means. But that's a view, this, that's an endorsement of what counts in life. So eudaimonia is, the central term in Greek ethics. And Aristotle actually was probably the philosopher who made that the central question. The people who are who get to define the questions for other people to answer, they're influential, even if their answers are not the ones that we would accept. Um, so it was Aristotle was the one who said, like, the question is, what is his whole ethical treatise? In fact, the one that I've excerpted in the, this book, How to Flourish, is all trying to answer the question, what is happiness and he's asking but he's asking really asking how should we live okay and so how mm -hmm. how can we be eudaimons if you want to live a blessed life in a certain idiom or if you want to live a happy life and you think if you're a parent what do you wish for your, your children to have your happiness a good life like that's what eudaimonia involves so it's mm -hmm. almost it's hard to translate 
but we have to translate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and something that comes up in the book is this idea that happiness is for its own sake, mm-hmm. kind of not some other end like other things. Could you talk a bit about that? Aristotle puts this kind of structure on what he's, I, I, I'm not going to tell you exactly like all the details of how to live a happy life, whether you should be a dentist or whether you should be a plumber or like what you should do, none of that. Um, but let's, we just think about happiness is it's something, it's good. And what is it to be good? Well, to be good is to be something that's worth desiring, it's to aim for, and there are different kinds of goods. You can just say things that we value are valuable. They're valuable for their own sake. And they can also be valuable for the sake of other things. There are some things that are valuable only like for the sake of other things, like um, having a root canal. That's valuable for the sake of dental health and avoiding pain, but it's not like valuable for its own sake. So, uh, so thinking, so if you think of what is happiness in the most abstract terms possible, where there's going to be lots of variety, how you fill it in and given your life circumstances, your historical circumstances, that it's, sort of the ultimate goal in life. So you think of happiness as something that's valuable for its own sake, right? Not because it gets you something else, but rather it's what's, so you're thinking of it's what's ultimately worthwhile, where that ultimate, that formulation plays the same role as for its own sake. So if you're inquiring to what is happiness, and I think, how should I live my life? That's sort of maybe that Socratic way of forming the question. When you get to Aristotle, says, is what is what is ultimately worthwhile in life? Or how do you live your life? How do you conceive of a life that's governed by a commitment to what's ultimately worthwhile? And so you can mm-hmm. see this is how you can think of it in terms of, you know, integrity and thinking about meaning um, and having sort of a point to life. Um, if you think, what's the point to this? What's the point to this? You're asking, what is the thing that's worthwhile that you're going to get from it? Sometimes the thing you get from it, this worthwhile, is the activity itself, right? That's a friendship is worthwhile for this, right? A lot of for in a lot of people's lives, religion and its activity is worthwhile for this, um, and so that's Aristotle's way of, um, I think, helping us understand in a more kind of formal level what happiness is okay we can disagree about what life is a happy life there are lots of disagreements about that what's the best life but we have to have some agreement about what we're disagreeing about when we're talking about happiness we're talking about you know what is ultimately worthwhile in life what is the source of value in a life that still it doesn't mean we're going to come up with a a single answer that's got a single blueprint um, and we're going to go to war to make sure that everyone follows this. And none of all that, well, he's just trying to think, well, happiness is, if, if you think about it in this very American formula, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, where this is, is kind of ideal, different, you should be free to pursue your own, what you think is worthwhile in your life. And there are things that no one should be able to like to, in, you know, infringe upon um, your ability to do so within um, certain limits. So that's sort of, that's still, that's about happiness. And it's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of, you know, satisfaction. No, it's about having a conception of a life and what makes it worth living and um, being able to pursue that. That's sort of something very human and sort of, you know, ultimately, not just ultimately, but sort of fundamentally worthwhile. I think that's where they, what's, 
when you talk about what's good or valuable for its own sake, I think that's how it fits into an Aristotelian framework. It's so interesting, like the level of maybe clarity or kind of this this highest good, knowing what the highest good is. Uh, you, you mentioned pleasure and you think about the Epicureans, another school of philosophy right. around that time. You have the Stoics uh, around this time as well. Virtue is the only good. So this kind of need to come up with some sort of response to, you know, what is this highest good? Um, you know, how do you think about that today in the way of clarity, you know, having some clarity in our own lives? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that the I'm sort of partial to like, of course, a very Aristotelian view. <laughs> so you think about um, I think the highest good, if I want to have a view of what the highest good is true to myself, but also respectful of differences with other people who might be living lives that I would never want for myself, like I couldn't, right? But nonetheless, um, I, I, you can respect that um, they would choose them. Um, then I want to think, well, the, how do you conceive of what the highest good is? And I think it's using all of your sort of all the features that you have as a human being, right? And then that includes sort of being reflective and thinking of being, feeling the pull of the search for wisdom. Something that's because mm -hmm. Aristotle says, well, when we're talking about happiness, this is the best life for a human being, not the best life for, he says, for an animal, that is for a non-human animal. He thinks that we, so human beings, in his view, this is his philosophical anthropology, and he shares this with Plato as well, is that we're sort of like a hybrid between animals and gods. And Aristotle has, and he, again, this is in common with Plato, this very intellectual conception of God or gods. He's sort of very sort of indifferently polytheist or monotheist in the language. So, But God is sort of pure intellect, um, whereas animals have desires and actions and they take care of themselves. They can be magnificent in all kinds of ways. But we are human animals, which means we have everything that animals have. And we have a little bit of what, the gods have, which is the, you know, the power of reason, he calls it logos, which is the ability not just to figure out how best to satisfy our needs and desires as animals, but to um, even develop and manage our abilities we have as animals and all those desires and feelings and that that's part of our animal nature. But we can have when you cultivate your your character, so you can be courageous, or so you can be caring or generous or self-disciplined. What you're doing is you're trying to harness your animal nature in line with the way you're using this divine part of your nature, which is your reason or your powers of reflection. So that's, so, and I take that's why when Aristotle famously says that what Happy. He actually gives you a definition of what happiness is, but you, it does not something you could then say it's twelve steps you can now apply. First, you make <laughs> your bed, and then you like you do nothing like that. Uh, he says happiness is the activity of virtue, right? Where virtue, he thinks, is what you've done when you've taken your rational powers, your powers you have because uh, this this is the divine element of you, and you've used it to inform your life, right? So it's living in the line, I would, the way I think it was living your life 
in a way that you can endorse where you're not, where you're honest with yourself. I mean, you have to be aware and you have to pay attention. You have to know things about yourself and your situation about other people, but you, you act on, you don't defer your judgment always to what the crowd says or what <laughs> your belly says or like how, like, uh, or what, you know, what's on Netflix or whatever, right? You've got to, you have, it's a kind of a self-directed life that's living in a way that only a human being can live, even though different human beings will lead very different lives. But if you're not, if you're just like the couch potato, right, and you never develop your talents and you never, um, and you're quite passive in the way you respond to, you know, questions of, you know, urgency either about yourself or about other people, then you're not living up, you're not fully developing your powers. Um, and so you're not living the best human life. I love this idea of living a life that you can endorse. It, um, it reminds me of a, of a previous episode we did a while back, the authors of the good life method and Aristotle comes up in that conversation around contemplation. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what is contemplation? I would assume that would have to be a key ingredient on that endorsement of how, you know, how do we discern whether it's something we can endorse? Yeah. So that's sort of an interesting, and it turns out a kind of disputed topic in in our, and how we understand Aristotle, because um, so the story I gave you before where a human being is a hybrid between the animal and the divine, because we get reason and rationality from, that's our divine side. Well, what Aristotle does, and this is another point where he diverges from Plato in ways I think it's really significant. He sort of divides, distinguishes two different ways we can use reasons, like two almost fields of operation. One, we can apply reason to how we live and what we're, how we are actually, this is the world of action, like doing things, living our lives as human beings and community with other human beings. And then, but he says, but that's not the best use of reason. There's using, you can use reason to contemplate eternal questions. He says, it's, it's presumptuous for you human beings to think that we humans are the best things in the universe. No, he's contemplating eternal truths, which he thinks of like mathematics and geometry and the, uh, and for him, the geometry of the cosmos. And that he thinks this is all, this is all, this is all the operation of God. He says, this is the perfect, um, rational, entirely universal um, structure of the universe. So, con- so con- what usually gets translated contemplation is theoria. It has sort of has a religious connotation, but it also has for gazing at. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually using your mind and your talents to contemplate eternal questions, um, which he's and he thinks that that's an important part of a life. Uh, and it's a and but there's also then there's the life that's involved in being a human being active in the ways of the world and engaging with other people. He says, that's when you're using your intelligence on matters of contingency and the human realm. And that's all, they're both very important. There are virtues in both of those. Um, Now the best life is the life of the gods and they only engage in contemplation. They only think eternal truths. So they're not actually like, looking at meddling with what we do and worrying about whether what you did on Friday was what you were supposed to. Um, That's not the conception of the gods um, he has. Uh, But we as human beings, so you want to have some of that in your life, 
that you want to have as mm-hmm. much you want to he has he uses he turns um the word for immortal into a verb and it's almost like we need to immortalize ourselves not the way we think of that's now like leaving a legacy but we should afanatidzane as much as possible we should be like the immortals as much as possible. Have some of that contemplative activity in your life. You can't, you're a human being. You have to eat, you have to sleep. You need to, you know, get your kids to school and do all kinds of things. You need to call and fulfill your responsibilities as a citizen. And that, like all of that takes you away from contemplation. But somehow you've, um, the best life, you, you're not living the best life unless you do that. But somehow, you, if you're living and you're a human being, you have to do this other stuff. So these two kinds of intellectual virtue. And Aristotle never quite, or he left it to us to try and sort out uh, how these two things go together. It's not, it's sort of, it's a very uh, sort of highfalutin version of like work-life balance where the ultimately important life and the practical life. Um, but so, yeah, theory or contemplation is not practical, um, and the question is, are you thinking you're not? And as far as I understand, Aristotle and people disagree about this. You're not thinking about the meaning of life when you're engaging in contemplation. Rather, the person who's exercising what I call good judgment, right? Phronesis, that's not contemplation. That's intelligence or the mind workings of the mind directed to practical matters. That's that's a that's a different kind of activity. Um, yeah, so, and he actually says it's, it's only a second best kind of life, but it's the human life. <laughs> Let me ask a, a follow-up curiosity question on this uh, endorsement thing. Mm-hmm. Say it's like, this is a life that I can endorse. You know, is that a version of an eternal question or could it be that way in, in terms of something that you would continually ask, wouldn't that change from decade to decade of maybe, you know, is this the life that I can endorse? Maybe connected with some sort of examined life, if if yeah. you will, I guess. Yeah. So I think it is exactly connected to uh, examined life. So it might be, you might think that this is the thinking about, is this a life that I can endorse? That's sort of my way of putting in my own words, but I think the the Aristotelian moral is that's a question you can ask at every stage in your life. Your life might be very different at these different stages. The things that you value and the, or the values that you put into action may be very different at these different stages. And you may change your mind that you endorse the life you might endorse when you're in your 20s may not be the life that you would be reflect back on it, you know, when you're in your fifties. Um, so, but the, um, the idea that you have to, that having the life be one that's subject to some standards, right? Standards that you think are important. That's what I take to be endorsing in life. That's a, it's just, am I living up to the, the standards for a human being? That's a way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and I, over the course of our lives, we may change our minds either on the details or sometimes on the big pictures of, you know, of what's, what are the standards for a human being, but you're, you can still be living up to what I think of the Aristotelian motto. If you are willing to be honest enough to, to, uh, and sort of to withdraw and reflective enough to say, is this a life I endorse? Yeah. 
How about this this idea of contemplation, thinking, good reasoning? Mm-hmm. Maybe those all shouldn't be in the same bucket. As you right. talked about, there's some differences. Mm-hmm. But how do we know if we're getting into, say, rumination, a more common term, mm-hmm. unhealthy thinking? Right. Because obviously Aristotle is talking about action. He's talking about right. habits. How do we know when we fall into rumination and stuff like that? Yeah, so that's a very modern kind of question. I try to think. So Aristotle says there are virtues both of, you know, that involve our desires and our feelings and stuff we do, but there are also a whole host of intellectual virtues. Those are different ways that we can be using, uh, avoiding, uh, the way of thinking, there are different kinds of errors we could be avoiding in the ways we think. And I was to say to me, you've just described a certain kind of error or like um, mistake or pathology, a reason where you just get, you know, stuck. You always, um, you want to, you're worried that you're making the right decision. You want to, you know, always be thinking and worrying and thinking about the, the, you know, the, um, you know, the the catastrophizing or doing something (laughs) like that. Um, There's, I actually think that um, Epicurus had actually a lot more to say about those kinds of, you know, cognitive pathologies. But there is one part of Aristotle where I think he talks at a certain level of generality, I think, to this issue. And he says, well, this is in the realm of what we call practical reason, reason used to like the affairs of life, right? Um, Mm. Not when you're off on your own contemplating the secrets of the universe. Um. And he says, well, the person, if you, if you have practical wisdom, or as I translate, if you have good judgment, like you figure out, like you arrive at like the right account of what, what you should do. Like you figure out, you do the right thing and you figure it out. But there are lots of ways, like you could somehow do it by mistake, like by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also start from the wrong principles. If you think what you want to do is, you know, maximize your chances of, you know, earning the most money in like your life, you know, in the next like 20 years or something. And then you like bail on your friends or your family or whatever. I'm so this is kind of a caricature. Like that's a, like, that's a fault you got. You're starting from the wrong, you know, you can start from the wrong goals. Um, You can also, you know, so you can make mistakes because you start from the wrong goals. Um, You could not make a mistake, but by accident. So you want to really start from a good goal, right? Have the right values and you want to implement them correctly. But you also want to not take forever, like to figure out whether the thing you're going to do is the thing that's going to fit with your goals. That's the kind of when you're totally recycling and maybe even obsessively going over it. Um, that he says, you could some people like to deli- you want to deliberate well. Deliberation is his view of how to connect what you value with what you do. It's how you implement like your values and your actions. So that's deliberation and it doesn't have to take a long time. Um, sometimes it's just obvious like what, how you implement in this, your values in a certain situation. But sometimes, uh, you know, it does take a little bit of judgment, but at some point you've got to stop deliberating, right? You might need to take like a meta view and think like, how much more can I sort of maximize my, you know, uh, my, dis- you know, the perfection of my decision here. Look, I just, We've got to, I've got to buy one of these boxes of cereal, right? Like I don't need to now look up um, every item, you know, on the list of ingredients, like on my phone, right. To do it like that's be doing too much. Right. So there is finding 
how you allocate your resources properly to the decisions in life. That's a familiar problem we all face. And that's also how you intellect your intellectual resources. So I think Aristotle has this thing about ruminating too much. He doesn't give you any particular strategies for avoiding the ruminations, where I think Epicurus actually, in some ways he does um, give you that, or he um, gives you a few more precepts. <laughs> <laughs> so is it safe to say he has a bias, have a bias towards action? And maybe that's a bit of a practical tip in the way to to keep in mind. Um, he has a bias. Well, especially it's not so much he has a bias towards action. He's reality folks. We we are we are thinking creatures, but we are also acting creatures. We cannot avoid acting. And so one of the ways of using our reason well is to use it in the service of acting well, right? And to do that. You've got to you've got to use it in a way that's good for acting, and so you don't miss the miss the uh, starting gun because you're still trying to get your feet lined up in the starting blocks, right? <laughs> and does that connect with habits? Because the the action it seems like that's how we would create the habits by by doing, not so much um, you know thinking about it to create some of those good habits. Yeah. So a lot of things. The thing about habits is that. Uh, once you've learned to do something, you don't have to uh, think carefully about every stage. I have a son who's learning to drive right now. So we've gotten to the stage. I sort of really appreciating how I just realize that when you start out, everything's difficult because everything's new because you have to think through everything. And as you get better, like you just you know how to when to put on your turn signal and when to put on the brake and when to all the stuff it becomes automatic it's all stuff you know but it's um it gets you don't have to then run through the rules every time the way you know when i learned to parallel park like there was an algorithm i learned like how to at what point you look through which window and you see what stimulus and then you turn your really you might learn kind of rules like that um but when things are habitual you can just you just do it right so one of so um, there's, I mean, this is, I mean, even psychologists today, like talk about, um, I don't, won't have the uh, technical terminology, but there's thinking fast and thinking slow, right? There's the stuff that you've got just of encoded in your automatic responses. Um, sometimes they're just because we are, um, it's our powers of perception are this way. We don't have to calculate the trajectory of that, you know, um, you know, fly in order to hit it with the swatter, right? Or maybe some of us are better at it than others, right? Or you don't, you can calculate where that stair is as you're about to step on it, right? All that, we do that automatically, but there's lots of stuff about actions we do, like try when you're like turning on your stove or you're swiping your card to pay for your groceries or um, you're like, trying to maneuver your car close enough to push the button to open the gate. Like you can get, if you only do that once it's you got, well, if you're me, you won't, you won't, it won't work. You'll have to get out and open the door to do it. But if you do it every day for 10 years, Monday to Friday, then, you know, you'll, um, you'll get to, you'll get to do it right. So, and our thinking is like that too. You can just get used to it. There's certain situations you face um, and um, you learn how to, you learn how to do it. Um, and yeah, so developing habits is not just develop, it's not just kind of mechanical habits, but habits of thought. And so it helps to be, um, to practice doing the right thing. Um, and it gets easier and sometimes it gets easier to figure out. Sometimes it's easier to, you can make fine grained dis discriminations once you've learned the kind of the basic 
things. Yeah, so they're intellectual habits, habits of thought, as well as just sort of habits of feeling and habits of action. Another popular term uh, from Aristotle is the golden mean. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could uh, talk a bit about that. And is, is that something unique to Aristotle? Is that, uh, you know, something that came from someone else? Well, so in Aristotle, we get the mean. Uh, we don't get the golden. Uh, that sort of, but that sort of comes in from, uh, I mean, sometimes you get, we have, you get different, I mean, golden is such a wonderful term. There's the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But that's like every religious tradition has that. So I think the gold, so Aristotle, this doctrine of the mean, it's not original to Aristotle. We see, or you see, again, this is Aristotle really working up into sort of a higher theory, something that you can see being developed in some of Plato's later dialogues. So the general idea is if you want to, if you're looking for some principles to live by, like what are, how should we act? What should we do? Wouldn't it be nice to have a list of things like to do and not to do? Um, And, but they have to be lists of things that are actionable. So just like honor thy father and mother, right? Well, okay. Yeah, but how do you do that? What counts as honoring? Does that mean you exceed by every request? Like there's no, so you need, so you're looking for rules. Okay. Then maybe there's some act. So the, are the, the question is, are there any types of actions that you should always do? Um, and Aristotle's general view is if it's, you might say, yes, if it's of the honor, thy father and thy mother, right? You should always do it. But if it's the always do what your dad says, the answer is going to be no. And so the things that you want to, the things, so if you, if you want just a sort of a menu of things to do, a list of things that are always to do or always not to do that you can then act on, the general you know, area of the doctrine of the mean is there is no such list. That is, as he says, his view is, look, at adultery is always wrong, right? He says, but sexual relations are not sort of always right or always and figure out what counts as adultery what counts as basically wrongful sex right and making money isn't wrong but in some circumstances it is in some circumstances it isn't so you might think for all of the various things that we value and pursue in life and these are going to be the domains of different virtues. There's a virtue about money. In fact, there are a couple of virtues about money, how you pursue it, how you give it to your friends, and um, how you put it to use in your life and in, um, um, in, in helping other people. There's also pursuing pleasures of like food, drink, and sex. There's a virtue about that one too. But there's no, there's not going to be any, any so that you can always pursue these things, engage in things. It, you know, some, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong, right? And over the course of a lifetime, you can say you could have done this thing too much, like because you did it on sometimes when you shouldn't have, or you might do it too little because you missed out on occasions when you should have, right? So that's kind of the doctrine of the mean. If you sort of, you know, quantify over a whole life and you think of, um, did you do it, um, you know, did you always get it right? It says no, right? So the idea is that sometimes it's, Sometimes and in some circumstances, it's something you should do or at any rate that it's okay to do. And sometimes in some circumstances, you shouldn't do it. But in other kinds of cases, it may be okay to do. So that's the doctrine of the mean. There's, there's, there are extremes, like there's too much and too little. 
which is sort of mm-hmm. a, that in itself is kind of like a metaphor. It's not like the volume on your stereo is either too high or too low because most action types have all kinds of circumstances that um, you can't just plot along a single line. It might be a cluster of thing of actions of you know pursuing money or engaging you know pursuing bodily pleasures that are perfectly okay. And then there's the excessive, <laughs> and there's the deficient on all kinds of different means. So the so it ends up being a so it's if you think that Aristotle is going to give you rules to live by, and it's the doctrine of the mean, neither. So don't go to excess and don't be deficient. Well, uh, thanks a lot, right? <laughs> and he even recognizes, he says, yeah, that's a ver- if you give a very abstract account of what a virtue of character is, it's a cultivated disposition to do the right thing <laughs> at the right time. And if it's a virtue concerning food, drink, and sex, it's to you know pursue and engage in these things um, at the right time, but not at the wrong times. Um, and, and to do, and to you do as what your good judgment, that what good judgment tells you. Right. And he, then he says, yeah. So now when we talk about the intellectual virtues, let's talk about good judgment. He says, you might not have found it very helpful when I said that you should do neither too much nor too little. Uh, uh, but as good judgment tells you, well, let's just think about good judgment. Now he still doesn't give, he never gives you any rules for what, good judgment is, but he sort of puts it in the, he sort of contextualizes it and sort of thinks of other ways we use reason, like he compares good judgment, how you apply to your life, compared with this more um, uh, cont- contemplative use of considering, you know, eternal questions and how you think about uh, and how good judgment, how you can cultivate good judgment without him giving you, you know, the rules. He says, well, you know, pay attention to things that distract you and, um, you know, you get, you know, there are people around you you can learn from um, and there are temptations that could keep you away from what you you know full well that you should have you know done that or you shouldn't have done that um, and think about why you didn't and if you um, work on why you didn't then you will have increased you know improved your ability to exercise good judgment it's such an interesting thing i think that uh obviously shows up in different wisdom traditions, maybe said different ways, some mm-hmm. sort of like the middle way or Delphic maxim, nothing to excess or some something like that. Mm-hmm. But in a way, it's like you never quite know for sure in a way what that, you know, exact mean, maybe how we kind of want some sort of certainty. We want some sort of it's exactly 52 degrees this way. You know, it's using some sort of good judgment, some sort of, you know, you do the best you can um, where you're at is such a such an interesting but seems to be a really a useful thing to have running in the in the background to maybe keep us off the uh, off the guardrails and things like that. Yeah, it doesn't. It's more like, yes, yeah, you put it keeping us off the guardrails. It doesn't actually help you settle a really difficult, the most important moral dilemma you faced in your life and something that they would write in novels and make a movie about in that. And so we tend to people who think about ethics today sort of in philosophy courses often focus on those things. Yeah, Aristotle's not you can't find an answer um, in the book uh, or in any of the books he's written. But he does. It's more he's thinking about more of everyday life. He does, He actually has more confidence than a lot of people today have that there's a right and a wrong answer in lots of cases. Mm. Uh, I actually think he's got a, he allows for a wider array of right answers than a lot of people um, 
think he does. But for him, it's most important. He thinks that it's possible to gain wisdom. He thinks societies who you know, raise their children well and, you know, and run their civic affairs well will you know, teach the next generation you know, the basic values. And by practicing those values yourself, you get to be better at them. And so there are a lot of quests. So the most, most of the challenges you actually face in life, if you want to learn to be a better person, there are still things you should work on, you know, finding out the ways that you don't, that, that what's keeping you from acting on your better judgment. <laughs> you know, what are these kinds of weaknesses? And there, where are, and that's a kind of self-knowledge. So another Delphic maxim, right? Knowing uh, that that's, and if you um, sort of reflect on either what you did or what you're going to think, well, why am I, and when I'm feeling conflicted, is that I really think I'm not sure what's the right thing to do, or is I really, I don't want to do, I really, it would be really hard for me. I really had other plans for the weekend, right? Um, so are you worried about, is this a, a moral question or is this actually a question about like self-discipline and mm. integrity? Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great, Susan. We've made it to this final wrap-up question that we, we generally ask most guests is, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? And I know we've been chatting about that and connected ideas for the last hour, but any sort of brief thoughts around wisdom in daily life? Yeah. So I think that if I was going to put on my Aristotelian hat, and I think that's, <laughs> that's my hat, it fits. Um, I would say that if you want to define what wisdom in daily life is, then it would be that Delphic maxim, not the nothing in excess, because that doesn't help you do anything. Uh, does not doesn't tell you do anything practical. But the other one, that's it's gnothi seauton. So know yourself, right? Mm. That's the uh, that is to say, you know more. Don't pretend you don't know. There's a lot of stuff you know, um, but you might not know yourself and the things about yourself that are keeping you from doing the things you know are the right thing to do. So I think that would be the most, that's actually a very good practical application because you can, we do have, we, of course, we could be self-deceptive, but we can work on examining ourselves. Well, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for that. And again, this has been great. Uh, your book is How to Flourish. I highly recommend it. Love the the series that it's a part of. It's, it's come up on the podcast many times. Is there anywhere you'd point listeners that are interested in learning more? I know you have a really, really popular online course called Aristotle and his successors, which we'll link in the show notes as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's a place to find. I have about six little lectures on Aristotle's ethics. They're in the context of Aristotle's philosophy as a whole. And if you want to get the platonic um, background um, to that, I have uh, another Coursera course. It's called very unimaginatively Plato and his predecessors. So that tells mm. you, you can see how some of these questions nice. arise in the context of Plato's dialogue. So yeah, so there, there are, none of these lectures is more than like 10 minutes long. Most of them are between five and 10 minutes long. They're very, I think they're, they're, they're intellectually stimulating, but they're, I think they're fun. Well, beautiful. Yeah. 
Well, thank you so much. I'm really appreciative of uh, you taking the time. So Susan Meyer, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. All right. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes. Until next time, be wise and be well.